wife is not living with me yet. Because <laughs> I couldn't live like this in squalor. <laughs> uh, but what's up? We want to live. Yeah. Well, she knows. <laughs> uh, let's close our eyes in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just pray that the words of scripture that we uh, read over us would be a prayer for our lives, that we would understand that you are the God who can cleanse us, even when we feel that uh, we are too far gone, that there is no hope, that we're too dirty. Um, You're the God who can wash us and make us clean uh, because of what Jesus Christ did, because he went out of the city gates and bore the disgrace. um, We can be washed. And so let us be a people who are also willing to go out from security and comfort outside of the city gates to be with Jesus and thereby be able to uh, wash others who come before us, people who don't have hope. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so we're in Acts chapter 12, and Abhi, I'm going to kind of ask you to do the same thing you did last time and read along with us. Uh, So just pull up Acts 12, and I'll give a little bit of an intro. Um, So Acts 12 is about halfway through the book. There are uh, 28 chapters, so it's a little less than halfway chronologically, but thematically especially, it's uh, halfway. Because up to this point, we've been looking at the church, right? Acts is about the church. Uh, and we've been, it, the framing of it is Jesus' command to the apostles before, like, the Holy Spirit's going to come down on you, and then you're going to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. And part of what Acts is doing is it's kind of playing that out, right? Like, you see the Spirit descend, the apostles begin the church in Jerusalem, 3,000 people are saved, and then immediately it starts to spread throughout Judea. Then they're persecuted by people like Saul, by the Pharisees. But because of the persecution, the church actually explodes out. It goes to Samaria. It goes to Ethiopia. It starts going, you know, it starts, uh, it's kind of like a, a ripple, right? Like a, pe- a pebble you put in a pond. The ripples are starting to expand outward. And by the end of the book of Acts, we see that the apostles have preached in the heart of enemy territory in, at the capital of Rome the city of Rome, uh, and that's where the book ends. So that's where we're kind of headed, and chapter 12 is the last time we're going to read directly about the apostles, uh, Peter and the 12, right? After this, the focus kind of shifts to Paul and Barnabas and uh, the missionaries going out into sort of the Greek cities and ending in Rome. So this is kind of like a thematic halfway, even if we're not chronologically halfway. Um, and I just want to talk a little bit about the way... Um, that I've decided to maybe the style of preaching here where, we're, where we did last time where we read and then paused and then meditated about it and then kept continued on uh, I don't know if yeah, like every preacher has different styles of preaching uh, typically what you'll hear is like a hook to like convince people that this is important and then three points and then different people have different styles some are like screaming into the mic make sure you're awake uh, and, you know, walk around and are really animated, and then there are Utchins who, like, are very sedate and are reading the, the entire thing. And, you know, it's just personal style and stuff. But I'm uh, convinced that that's not the best approach in general, or with this group, because we're a small group. Like, I think we can be a little bit more intimate and a little bit more contemplative as we go through uh, the book. And I also think it's good for us, especially with the Book of Acts, because it's a narrative, to try and really understand the story. Because what the Bible does with its narratives is it's very um, economical. So you guys understand what that means? Like, it says one sentence, but in that sentence is packed a bunch of different ideas. And a lot of times, because we're not 
we're so far removed. We're 2018 years removed from the crucifixion of Christ, right? We don't really understand the full context of what that sentence is saying. So what I think the best thing for me to do is to try and like draw out a lot of the meaning that's packed in to that sentence. And that means, the reason I'm saying this is I'm trying to warn you, that means sometimes it's going to sound like a history lesson. But the reason why is because I really believe that you have to understand the context in order to immerse yourself in the story. Because I have like a full confidence in the word to tr change you. It's not my style of preaching. It's not my ideas or anything. It's understanding this story. When you inhabit this story, then the word will inhabit you and the spirit will inhabit you. And I think that's the root of transformation. Because, you know, we're all guys here. And I think that's especially important for men. Because I think men, when they don't have a sense of purpose or meaning for their lives, they quickly become lost. They quickly, like sleep all day, I mean, I'm speaking from personal experience, sleep all day, watch Netflix. Back then we had to get the CDs, so I'm not as up to y'all. Y'all have the, like what, you just, you know, don't do anything five seconds, the next episode plays. You don't have to do anything. I mean, I mean, and it's like all kinds of different things. And again, I'm speaking from experience that you're just sleeping all day, Netflix, obsessing about girls, on the internet, porn, all these different things are there. And guys can quickly lose their way if they don't have a sense of purpose and meaning. And what I'm trying to tell you is like the Bible, the story that this tells gives the most amazing purpose and meaning to your life if you will let it, if you'll let the story inhabit you. Uh, because what men are called to do, men particularly, women and men, but men particularly, are to impose order into chaos, the chaos of the world. And by doing that, we bless the world. We make the world a safe place for, for the weak for women to flourish, for uh, people who are excluded to flourish. That's what God has called us to do. And that's why I think it's really important uh, for us to understand this story. All right, so with all that said, let's read Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 5. It was about this time that King Harold arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of the Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod in intended to bring him out for the public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. All right, awesome. All right, so one important thing to note about this is what, when was this? What time was this? This is Passover again. Right? When was Jesus arrested and crucified and killed? Passover. It was Passover time, right? That's when he did the Last Supper and all, all that. And so there, there's sort of a, there's a poetic resonance there because the disciples are now persecuted the way Christ was persecuted. James is actually killed. Peter is in prison by sort of the same actors, the same religious institutions. We've seen that in Acts, right? The priest, the same priest, uh, the Sanhedrin that condemned Jesus to death condemned Stephen to death, right? We read that earlier. Now the same, uh, it's not the same heritage, we're going to talk about that a little bit, but the same family that conspired in the killing of Jesus is conspiring to destroy the church. And I think there's a clue there for us that we should expect that if we are part of this kingdom, really part of this kingdom, we're called into suffering and we're called into persecution. We're called into misunderstanding. Uh, we're called into opposition. And so we should not think, uh, you know, there's a, there's a style of Christianity out there typically associated with the prosperity gospel. And some of what it says actually has truth in it. Like God is a God that wants your good. God is a gracious father. That's a big 
uh, emphasis in preaching from like Joel Osteen from Lakewood or whatever. But the prosperity gospel gives you this sometimes this false sense that if you trust in Christ, if you follow the way of Christ, it's all just going to be roses for you. And I think sometimes our parents inherit that sense too, and that's what comes down to us. Oh, if something bad happens to us, we must be doing something wrong. Well, actually, sometimes bad things happen to you because you're doing something right. That's what we see in the example of uh, Peter and James who are being persecuted. Because what we're called into is, um, in any narrative, there's always conflict, right? There's going to be a good side and a bad side. And in that conflict, there will be suffering. But what God is doing through that suffering is uh, trying to bring a glorious end to everything. So he is, at the end of the day, just like the prosperity gospel says, he is a good father. It's just that on the way to bringing that final goodness, there is going to be suffering for us when we're working for that kingdom. Second point uh, I want to sort of highlight is who is this Herod? So, and this is actually key to understanding the story. Uh, that All the Herods stand in for the powers of the world in a very particular way. But if you don't understand the backstory, you're going to get lost. So in the Gospels and in Acts, we encounter four different Herods. They're all called Herod, but they're actually four different people. So you have Herod the Great. He's the guy who tried to wipe out Jesus when he was just born. You guys know that story? Like the Magi come and they're like, where's the king of the Jews? And Herod's like, what? And the reason why Herod is threatened is because he's not a descendant of David. And I'm, I'm going to get that into that in a little bit. He knows that the true king of the Jews is supposed to be a descendant of David. He's not. So it's actually kind of like a Game of Thrones kind of thing. Like he's the Baratheons, right, who've taken away... Uh, the throne from the Targaryens, and then all of a sudden these people come and say, hey, where's the new Targaryen king? And he's like, oh, I thought I wiped out all the Targaryens. That's what's happening there. So Herod the Great, then Herod Antipas, that's the one that oversaw the execution of Jesus, who clothes him in a purple robe. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. Then we have Herod uh, Agrippa the first. That's the one we're reading now. So he's the nephew of the guy who clothes Jesus in uh, purple. And then later on, we're going to see his son, Agrippa. Herod Agrippa, and that's going to be later on. He has a confrontation with Paul. Uh, so, again, who are the Herods? If you study history, you know that all great empires have strategies for, like, power and control, right? So if you, like, you know, I was into politics, and when I was in college, one of the big things I studied was foreign policy. And so understanding America's foreign policy, you understand how it kind of maintains control over the world. Even though we don't have a formal empire, we are the most powerful nation, right? And we've created a system to maintain our control. So we set up these multilateral institutions like the World Bank, like the United Nations. Uh, our Navy protects the world's heaviest traffic lanes. So that's actually how we you know, ensure that all the goods can be shipped everywhere, ensure prosperity. Um, Britain had a similar strategy of having a, a Navy that protected traffic lanes. It also had the colonies like India and Egypt and in the Caribbean to maintain its power. Nebuchadnezzar, in, uh, if you look at the Old Testament, his strategy was bring in all the nobles, all the elites, all the smart people to Babylon and make them Babylonian. Make them eat Babylonian food, give them Babylonian names, make them follow Babylonian customs. That's why it was a big deal when Daniel, in Daniel chapter 1, you guys remember this story? He refuses to eat the Babylonian food, right? And he says, just give me vegetables and water. We just think, oh, Daniel fast, it's a good way to lose weight. But no, that's not what it was. He was trying to maintain his own culture as separate. He was refusing to become Babylonian because that was the strategy of Nebuchadnezzar to keep his empire. Rome had a strategy too, and it was kind of similar to the United States strategy now where they protected the traffic lanes, I mean the trade lanes, which were the roads. Rome built these like amazing roads that actually we, we uh, when you ask like engineers, we don't know how to make 
the kind of roads that the Romans made. That technology is lost to us because that kind of concrete that doesn't crack, we don't know how to make it. It's a pretty amazing feat of technology. So they create these amazing roads and they would set up client states. They would find a local leader. It's kind of what the British did in India too. They would find a local leader that they could trust, give him the power, say, hey, you're king of this region and then rule it for us and then we get to tax you. That was kind of their strategy. So what Rome did in Judea was they found this guy named Herod Antipater, and he was actually not a Jew. He was an Edomite. The Edomites are the descendants of Esau, okay? And so he's not an actual Jew, but they made him the king. So now you can kind of understand why the Herods are always really insecure about their power. They're not actually Jewish. They're actually the Edomites who are the, you know, in the Old Testament, they're the enemies of the Jews. They're the descendants of Esau. And so... He's, that's why all the Herods are always extremely insecure, and that's why they're very prone to violence. And so that's why Herod, um, this Herod, Herod Agrippa I, realizes that persecuting the, the Christians are a way to kind of kill two birds with a stone, one stone. He's able to uh, please his Roman masters, who are the ones who support his crown, by putting down dissension, because the Christians are creating, like, kind of a ruckus, right? And so Rome doesn't like that. Rome wants stability. Rome, Rome doesn't really care what people do as long as it's stable. But as soon as change starts happening, Rome gets nervous and that's when it sends its militaries in. So he's pleasing the Romans and he's also pleasing the Jewish people who are opposed to Christianity, right? He's like, hey guys, I'm going to protect your ancestral traditions that you say are being threatened by these Christians. So that's why he seizes James first, who's like, a, he's one of the 12, but he's a lesser leader. And then he sees what the reaction is, and he's like, okay, I'm going to go after, Paul, uh, after Peter as well, because Peter's more of the acknowledged leader. And this James is the brother of John. Uh, later on, we're going to read, and we've already met, uh, actually, earlier in James, uh, earlier in Acts, the brother of Jesus, James. He's the one that writes the letter of James. So just try and keep that straight in your mind, because a lot of the people in uh, the New Testament share the same name, and so that can get confusing. So this is James, the brother of John who was one of the first 12 disciples who's been killed. Now Peter's been arrested. And it's interesting, finally, last note, that he kills James with the, with the sword and not by stoning. So if you kill someone by stoning, that's the way Stephen was killed, it's seen as a religious uh, problem, right? A religious threat. That's why the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council of uh, priests, were the ones that oversaw the killing of Stephen by stoning. If you kill someone with the sword... That means that you're getting rid of a political threat. So understand, Herod understands that Jesus is making a political claim over us. He's the king of the Jews, right? And Herod is saying, I'm the real king of the Jews. So that's why he kills him with the sword. All right, let's continue. Uh, actually, one more point. Sorry. Final point here is we have to realize the enemy behind the enemy. Uh, Later on, Paul says we don't struggle against flesh and blood, but, but against principalities and powers, right? You guys have heard that. And here, Herod stands in for something. He's representative of something. He symbolizes something. And that's the love for power and for popular approval. There's going to be coming, I think, a time in your lives, or maybe it's already come. It's come in my life multiple times where you are sort of standing at a crossroads uh, where you make a decision. And every decision... C.S. Lewis has the saying, every decision makes you into either a more heavenly creature or a more hellish creature. And you'll stand at the crossroads of the decision and it's, do I sleep with this girl or do I not sleep with this girl? Do I plagiarize that paper or do I not plagiarize that paper? Do I steal from the company? Do I not steal from the company? 
there, there are going to be decisions and it's going to take you down a path. And uh, in ev- with every decision you make, you're either uh, traveling down the road of greater submission to God or greater submission to the principalities and powers that want to destroy you. And sometimes it's the great mercy of God when he gives you judgment, uh, when he judges you for those problems, when he, sends, when he sends consequences for you for your bad decisions, when, you know, sometimes you'll get an STD or, you know, you'll something. Like, he's trying to wake you up. It's, a, it's the mercy of God. He's trying to say, stop. Don't go down that road. I'm trying to pull you back and send you there. Actually, one of his most terrible judgments is when uh, he leaves you alone. When he leaves you alone to do what you want to do. When you say, God, just leave me alone, and then he's silent, that's one of the most terrible judgments of God because he's leaving, he's leaving you to your own damnation. And that's what hell is, right? Hell is God's, you know, uh, C.S. Lewis again says, there are only, in the end, there are only two responses. Either we say to God, thy will be done, or God says to us, thy will be done. And one is heaven and one is hell. Those are the two choices before us. And so that's the enemy behind Herod, is this love for power and popular approval. And that's what's driving him towards, this, towards becoming this monster, this moral monster. And the same sort of decisions uh, are driving us, and we should be aware of what the enemy behind our enemies, the enemy behind the obstacles coming, the force in the road that are presenting themselves to us is. So, all right. With that, let's uh, read Acts chapter 12, verses 6 to 11. <clears throat> The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrist. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing that was what. what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angels and rescued me from Herod's, Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish pe- people were hoping would happen. Okay, awesome. So, Abi, can you remind me at the beginning there, how many guards were, did Herod set on Peter? Uh, he was sleeping between two soldiers. So, he's, so kind of imagine the scene. He's chained up. He's sleeping between two soldiers. And I think earlier it said there were four sets of entries. Yeah. So it's like you have one set of four, then another set of four, then another set of four, then another set of four. So Herod probably has known the story that, you know, Christ rose from the dead. You know, and there... Um, there had been two centuries next to the boulder. And so probably what did Herod think? Someone stole the body of Jesus, right? And now they're going around saying that Jesus rose from the dead. So what's he doing to avoid that? He's setting up all these guards so that no one can come in and rescue Peter or do anything or say anything amazing did happened. But what we see here is, uh, first, I just want to emphasize the futility of mankind's opposition to God and the power of God to save. So Herod's put... Basically, 18, uh, no, sorry, 16 people. No, I'm, I can't add. Four times four is 16, plus two, 18. So 18 guards on one guy, Peter. And, so, and what happens? An angel just, what, shows up. And, and while Peter's sleeping, 
takes his chains off and leads them by. And the, that it's supposed to be kind of ridiculous and funny because later on we'll, we'll find, you know, as we read on, Harry gets really pissed because he's like, what happened? And everyone's like, I don't know where he is. Do you, did you have him? No, I didn't have him. Do you have him? And, and then he ends up killing all the guards, which is kind of sad. <laughs> so it's kind of, uh, yeah, that's what power does to you. You become pretty brutal. But it just shows like the amazing providence of God that he's able to save anyone no matter what their situation is. Uh, and there's nothing no, anyone can do about it. But that leads us to a question to wrestle with, right? Why Peter and not James? You know, so because we were, we really, like, the way the chapter opens, it's in the first two verses. There's no story about James, right? James was also a, a disciple beloved by Jesus. James was, you know, with Jesus. There were, there were three disciples that were, seemed to be particularly close, right, with Jesus that were kind of his inner circle among the 12. And who were those three? It was James, John, and Peter, right? They were present at the transfiguration when Moses and Elijah came down, all these different places. They kind of came up closer to him when he was praying in Gethsemane about going to the cross um, right on the night that he was arrested. So does this mean that God doesn't care about James? I don't think so. But at the same time, we're not really given a reason why Peter, not James. And so we're kind of left to wrestle with that. And I don't really have a good answer for you. For you. We're, we're supposed to wrestle with it. And in the course of wrestling with that, sometimes we're going to come across questions when we read the Bible or things that, you know, a lot of times there, there are questions like, why did God uh, command, the, you know, the war against the Canaanites? How is that fair? You know, or why does God say we have to do this and not that? Or it, sometimes things happen in our lives where it's like, God, why are you doing this? Why did you give this person that disease? Why did this person live and that person die? And at the end of it, we have to trust. We have to trust that it's all going somewhere. That's, that's kind of, the, I think, the takeaway from that. We have to trust that God is able to save, but that if he doesn't save, he has a reason and we have to remain faithful. And that's kind of uh, the prayer that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said when they were uh, thrown in the fire. If you guys remember that story, Nebuchadnezzar puts them in the fire. Uh, he says, unless you bow to my statue that he made of himself and worship my statue, I'm going to throw you into the fire. And what it, the three of them said, our God is able to save us and he will save us. But if he doesn't save us, even if he doesn't save us, we're not going to worship your, your statue. And so it shows a confidence in God's ability to save, and yet, no matter what happens, a total trust in God. That's the attitude that we're called to. All right, let's keep on reading. Acts chapter 12, verses 12 to 19. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and the servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they had opened the door they saw him, and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell, ja tell James and the, other, and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards in order that they be executed. Okay, great. So this is kind of the end of our uh, story with Peter in the book of Acts. Later on in church history, we believe that he went on to Antioch, you know, where Paul had been, uh, and then he made his way eventually to Rome, and that one of the people who was with him uh, was Mark uh, in the church in Rome, and that's how Mark was able to write 
his gospel, the gospel of Mark, is based off of Peter's teachings. That kind of seems to be the consensus of the church. But we don't read any of that in the scripture. Those are the traditions that have come down to us in the church. Um, one, one thing, and then obviously later on he uh, writes the first letter of Peter and the second letter of Peter to all the churches. So that's kind of where Peter ends. At the end of his life, um, you know, in the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus, you guys remember, he says, Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? And he does it three times to sort of make up for the three times Peter had denied Jesus. And then each time Jesus says, feed these lambs, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Um, and then before that, I think after that, uh, Jesus says, you know, at the end of your life, uh, you're going to be t- you're going to be taken to a place where you do not want to go, and what Peter was uh, John says right after that he says he was speaking of his manner of death. Peter dies as a martyr to the church. So Peter is saved here earlier. You know we were saying he was saved, and yet at the end he is still killed by the enemies of the church. He is actually by church tradition uh, he's blind. He's led blind to a crucifix, and he insists on being crucified upside down because he doesn't want to died in the exact same... He says he's unworthy to die in the same manner as Jesus. And so that's the way that Peter, Peter's story comes to an end. But here we actually see kind of a, a, comic, a comedy um, because what happens? So, so uh, earlier on in verse 5, what did it say? Abi, do you remember? It said... Uh, in verse 5? Yeah. It said that um, the church was praying for Peter. church is praying for Peter, right? And so then later on, there's basically this prayer meeting that's going on. Peter's been rescued. He knocks on the door. And then the servant comes to the door and is like, who is it? He's like, it's Peter. And then she like runs away. She like, it's supposed to be kind of a funny scene, uh, a bit of humor and kind of a sad story about the death of James and everything in that she ran away, not opening the door. She's so excited. And then when she tells the church, the church that's praying for Peter to be rescued, what do they say? They don't, I don't believe you. <laughs> They're like, pray, God, please save Peter. God, please save Peter. Then someone, like, it's like if I'm praying that, and then Ubi comes to me and is like, hey, the person you're praying for is at the door. He's been rescued. And I'm like, nah, that's, come on. <laughs> and then what did they say? It's interesting that also that they said, it must be his angel, right? So what does that mean? Well, back in that day, they also had a lot of debates about what happens to us after we die. The Jewish hope uh, among a big segment of the population as is the Christian hope, is for ultimately at the end of the world, not just our spirits are in heaven, but resurrection, right? So that means that at the end of time, heaven will come back down to earth. There will be a new creation, and our souls that were with God in heaven will be given new bodies. And it will be like this world, except perfect, beautified. Uh, and so we're going to be engaged in all kinds of really cool stuff. I don't really know, but it, the, the picture at the end of the world is not us you know, kind of being wispy ghosts playing on harps or anything like that. Uh, but the Jews did have this understanding that sometimes the spirits of those who have departed and have gone on to be with God, at, you know, as, after they die, they're able to visit us. And so they thought that by saying Peter's angel, they were thinking maybe Peter's been killed, and so his spirit appeared before you. And this is a really important uh, point to keep in mind because a lot of times uh, when you when you examine the historical evidence for the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead, uh, if you read especially N.T. Wright, um, there seems to be a lot of really good historical evidence that at least the church believed that Jesus rose again from the dead. Because you see these 12 nobodies, people who are totally uneducated, becoming 
all of a sudden these amazing leaders, and there, there doesn't seem to be a good explanation for it. Because usually what would happen if uh, a Messiah figure came, because there had been multiple Messiah, people who claimed to be the Messiah before Jesus and after Jesus. And usually if that person died, what the people would do is they would turn to the brother or the uncle or the cousin or something and set that person up as the new Messiah figure. So here, the logical figure would be James, right? Like James, the brother of Jesus, should be the next Messiah figure. But the, but the Christians never do that. Instead of saying that, they, they insist that Jesus actually is the Messiah, and the proof of it is that he's raised from the dead, that he's actually resurrected. And so scholars have looked at that, and they've been forced to confront you know, this idea that actually, hey, that makes sense. And so they said, well, maybe they saw an angel, or maybe they saw a spirit, and that's why they were so transformed. And what N.T. Wright has come back and said is, look, they had, the people in the ancient world had categories for stuff like that. They knew what angels and spirits and people, they were familiar with that phenomenon, but they insisted that it wasn't Jesus' spirit that appeared before them. It was his actual flesh and blood resurrected body. And so I think that's just something interesting to note here too, that they didn't think, oh, Peter must be, you know, like they had a category for that, for people coming back from the dead, but not fully. And that's the whole angel thing. All right, let's read the last five verses. Acts chapter 12, verses 20 to 25. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not, a, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and was eaten. He was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Yeah. So here we're introduced to Mark, who's going to be a significant figure in the church. Later on, writes the, the earliest gospel that we have. Uh, but I want to focus in on the judgment of Herod. Uh, when you, two of you were at our Bible study, right, the slow anger of God, but the slow of anger of God does not mean the no anger of God, right? Anger eventually comes. Judgment may be delayed out of God's great mercy because he desires not just the oppressed to be saved, but the oppressors to be saved too, but it's not going to be delayed forever. Eventually, uh, God will bring judgment on evil and he will destroy it. And that's actually a cause for celebration. You know, in, in the book of Revelation, the martyrs are before God asking how long, how long will injustice reign on the earth? In, in, earlier in uh, the Old Testament, the prophets are always writing and crying out to God, how long, how long will you allow injustice to reign on the earth? God would not be a good God if he did not judge and destroy evil. And so the warning for us here is that the slow anger of God, yes, God is loving, he is merciful, but it's exactly because he is a God of love that he will not tolerate our evil. And we have to recognize our evil and the way that we participate with evil. So when we were talking about coming to those forks in the road, right, and God's great mercy and trying to pull us back, eventually there will come a time that he's not, he's not only not going to pull you back, there's going to be a time when he comes and judges. And at that moment, like Herod, those of us who have not repented and turned to the way of the kingdom of God, we will go the way of the worms, right? Jesus actually says that as well. It's not just, you know... In the book of Acts, Jesus calls Gehenna, which is the, the hell, the place where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. 
The worm never dies. That is showing death, decay, constant decay. That's the state for those who continue to reject the way of love and goodness. God, God withdraws himself totally from there, and God is the source of all love, delight, and goodness. And so if God is not present, all that's left is barrenness and darkness. Um, and that's what ends up happening to Herod. Eventually there comes a point where you've made a decision that takes you beyond hope. That's, you know, and that's what happened to Herod here, right? He put himself in the place of God. What does is, what is putting yourself in, in the place of God mean? Well, in Genesis, it's when Adam and Eve take from the tree the fruit of good and evil, right? They decide to decide good and evil for themselves. All of us within ourselves, we kind of know what good and evil are, but we try to convince ourselves that we can define it for ourselves. We make these like, very compelling arguments for why we can do X or Y and why it's ultimately okay. And God, in his mercy, again, he delays his judgment. Sometimes he'll give you warning shots, but he delays his judgment for that. But eventually there comes a point where he's like, no more. And then there's judgment. Uh, and so in, in opposition to that, there's the kingdom of God that nothing can ever stop. That even when James is killed, even when there seem to be like about 20 guards preventing you from doing what you're supposed to do, God finds a way to continue uh, your story. And so those are the two options set before us, life and death. And we all have to kind of make our decisions. And then not only that, witness to other people who may not know about that confrontation and why should, they should always choose the way of life. Okay, uh, let's close our eyes and pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray that, uh, first of all, that we see the mercies in your judgment, the way that you're trying to restrain us and call us back. Um, just the wonder of your slow anger, Father, and help us to understand that your slow anger means that you won't just totally destroy us uh, when we do evil. Uh, you're patient with us, always wanting, you're desiring everyone to be saved, Father. That's what Peter writes in uh, 1 Peter. But, Lord, you won't be patient with us forever. There will come a time where you will bring heaven back to earth. And at that time, everything that's incompatible with your perfection and with your holiness and with your intention for all of life will burn away, Father. And Lord, help us to uh, be alive to that. Help us to understand that that there is a purpose behind that. There's even a beauty behind that because you want to make everything that's wrong right again um, and that you will not permit evil to destroy your creation again. But also help us to tremble before that, uh, to tremble for our friends and family who may not know that and uh, convict us um, to warn people of that and to extend the mercy of God in the face of your coming judgment. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, let's stand and...